This is episode 429 with Chief Data Scientist at Untapped, John Crone. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today, we've got a very cool episode with John Crone. We spent uh, over an hour discussing 2020 in retrospect in terms of technological breakthroughs. In this podcast, you will hear about three main uh, topics that uh, we identified, well, John identified as the most interesting breakthroughs. And the first one will be AlphaFold, which happened literally just a month ago in uh, November this year. And that is a massive breakthrough for machine learning and for the space of biology as well. You'll uh, learn everything you know about protein folding, what it's all about, the CASP competition, uh, how AlphaFold, a uh, child of DeepMind, uh, which is owned by Google, uh, managed to solve this uh, protein folding challenge and what it means. Most importantly, what it means for the space of biology, for the future of tech, and for uh, the future of AI and machine learning. The second topic we spoke about are GPUs, uh, and you will find out uh, why they're important for the space of deep learning, what are the recent developments in the space of uh, GPUs, tips and tricks on how they are used by individual deep learning practitioners and enterprises alike. For instance, we spoke a bit about parallelization of GPUs. And finally, the third topic for today was GPT-3, the revolutionary natural language processing model from OpenAI that has completely just left all other models uh, far behind. They're so far ahead. You'll find out what GPT-3 is, um, how it works in in some high-level uh, ways, but we're also going to some uh, detail on uh, certain aspects of it, such as self-attention and semi-supervised learning. You'll find out what those things mean. And um, also, what are the implications? What are the use cases? Where this is going? And you'll hear two different opinions. Like, I'm super excited or like uh, overly excited about it and optimistic. John is a bit more skeptical, so you'll hear both opinions uh, on that and how it's uh, going to progress. But nevertheless, one of the biggest breakthroughs uh, in the space of natural language processing, which uh, happened not that long ago, earlier this year. So that's what this podcast is about. Of course, you'll also hear a bit of John's background, and we've got an important and excitement, exciting announcement, uh, which we'll mention at the very start of this episode. It's to do with the future of this podcast and how uh, we're going to progress in 2021. What exciting things you can look forward to. And so without further ado, let's get straight to it. I bring to you John Crone, Chief Data Scientist at Untapped. Wow, 
Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super excited to have you back here on the show. And today we've got a very cool episode, very special guest, and you'll find out why we're very special just now. John Crone joining us from New York. John, welcome. Hey there, Krill. It's always a delight to be here. And yes, uh, <laughs> well, I was just about to spoil everything. Uh, continue on, continue on. <laughs> uh, okay uh you know what i well, let's let's uh uh create a bit of like tension and and uh put it off for a second <laughs> i wanted to talk about to start with like uh, we were chatting before we started the podcast that uh it snowed in new york like a, a day ago or today right for you um and it, it was, was snowing a, today and it was hitting the ground melting right away yeah Exactly. And uh, some kind of deep analogy. <laughs> no, it was just like, uh, it's just interesting. Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't lived in New York. I don't know if like maybe 10, 20 years ago, it snowed more. But it, like, it feels that way that that's where the world's going. Like I've spoken to many people from different parts of the world and they're like, oh, we haven't had snow yet. Or like, oh, it's, it's starting to snow later. And this whole, like you inevitably start thinking about the global warming situation and that it makes me like wonder how unique is our generation, like our generations that are on the planet now that we are the ones going through such a crazy transition in the planet's life. Like no other generation before was like, okay, always kind of the same as our parents and grandparents and great parents. But not only do we have like this technological revolution and all this stuff going on, we also have this global warring thing that we have to face and we will have to face more and more. Um, so yeah, it's it's an exciting, it's an alarming, but also exciting time to be alive. What do you reckon? Yeah, there are, I saw interesting studies of how Olympic, winter Olympic Games sites from the 20th <laughs> century that in, that today, and certainly in a few decades, many of those sites would not be possible sites for the games. Wow. Uh, you wouldn't be able to have enough snow for skiing and so on. Um, so we're, you know, there, there's real tangible change happening. Um, yeah, that's actually, you know, it's a topic that's a very much of interest to me. And I think that there is a surprising amount that data science, um, can impact positively, uh, around the environment. And yeah, this is a topic that I am super interested in. I don't think it's one of the topics that we're going to be talking about today, but it will <laughs> no. come up a lot. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, but back to our big, big announcement. So um, it was already briefly mentioned on the previous episode. Um, and John, John spilled the beans. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's all good. It's all good. And uh, we'll mention <laughs> it again today. I'll, I'll definitely record in the next, in the upcoming Five Minute Friday. I'll talk more about it. But uh, once again, wanted to say that super pumped uh that from 2021 john is going to be the new host of the super data science podcast um a big fan of uh john's uh personality or not even personality but character you know like character is um is like your inner stuff like not what just the outer people people see outside how you present yourself to people but like your inner beliefs and values and um, when I had to pick a host for the podcast, I told this story to John 
like I just knew right away. Like I didn't have to go and interview people. <laughs> I didn't like I didn't even have you know multiple options to select from. I like I knew right. Like, talk to John first, and John kindly agreed. John, how do you feel? Well, it was I. I couldn't believe that that's what the call was about when you phoned me to tell me about that because we actually we hadn't spoken in many months. We did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was on Kirill's podcast, which is how we met, uh, mm-hmm. and then I invited Kirill to be on my podcast. So I had at that time I was piloting uh, a news podcast, uh, and Kirill agreed to be on it, and I was blown away even then because Kirill's hosted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of his own super data science podcast, but he hadn't been on a podcast in years and it was his, his second podcast guest appearance ever. So we were really honored to have him. And um, yeah, then we hadn't talked in several months. I don't think we'd even had emails back and forth. Mm. And so I got this email from Kirill saying, I have a podcast idea. And I was like, cool. I would love to try to provide some kind of ideas or whatever, some feedback. I can't imagine what I know that Kirill doesn't. Um, but uh, yeah, and then you, you, uh, you got on, you, I don't know if you remember this, but you started off by saying, I'm, I'm a bit nervous about this and I, I don't know how to say it, so I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to like rip the bandaid off. And then I was like, and then you asked, and I was like, absolutely. I would love to be uh, the host of the Super Data Science Podcast. It is such an amazing podcast. You've cultivated such a great audience. And uh, always such wonderful guests. I also love the Five Minute Fridays. That's something, a really nice special touch that you've added in uh, on top of the longer guest episodes. And yeah, it's truly an honor. When we, uh, I'll, be, I'll be candid with the listeners when we were uh, getting ready to record uh, last week's episode, last week's guest episode, I was nervous going into it and I'm not nervous ever. Like uh, if I'm lecturing in front of hundreds of people live, I never have a single butterfly in my stomach, but yeah, because of the the amazing audience, uh, I don't want to disappoint you guys and I won't disappoint you guys, uh, but I'm just getting a little nervous making sure that that's true. <laughs> nice, nice. I'm sure uh, everybody is going to uh, be... Uh, <laughs> um, patient with any like blunders that happen along the way <laughs> but also very understanding and love to have you um, we've already seen that with uh, the signups to your course uh, on uh, Udemy like it's 80,000 yeah. right or over 80,000 80, people have signed up and the crazy thing so a lot of people when they sign up for the course and do the course I've gotten a lot of people reach out to me on LinkedIn and say that was an amazing course and then That's I always good. write back because I'm like that is, the course isn't done. The course is one eighth done. Um, okay. So, you know, so we put out, there's three and a half hours of content right now, but there's going to be about 25 hours when the course mm-hmm. is completely done. And so we took this, you know, it's a strategic decision. Do you, do you wait? It's going to be another, you know, many months at least to get that much more content recorded and out or let the audience enjoy things as it comes out and get it to people sooner. And so that's the route we went down, but um yeah, it's it's amazing to me that eighty thousand people have signed up. When, from my perspective, I'm like, it's not even there yet. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over two hundred hours of content, and thirty plus courses with 
new courses being added on average once per month. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. John, um, this, is, this wasn't planned, but I, I want to ask you like for our listeners who are like, oh yeah, someone like, I love John, this is going to be amazing. But someone like, who the heck is John? Like, what, oh, what is yeah. he going to bring? <laughs> Tell us yeah. a bit about like, about yourself, but most importantly, like, what are your values in life? You know, like, so people can decide if they resonate with you and, um, and like what to expect. Wow, sure, yeah. So um, I trained as a scientist. I think I've kind of always been a scientist at heart. Um, so I did a PhD at Oxford in neuroscience and thought for a long time that I would do medicine as well, so be a, uh, a medical scientist. And I decided after the PhD that I actually wanted to get involved in the commercial world, startups, that kind of thing, because I believed that you can have the biggest impact by creating products, data-driven products in particular, and um, automate things, make people's lives easier, have a good impact on the environment. There's so many opportunities uh, in the same way that we are confronted by these very unusual times, like you mentioned, you know, climate change is a big thing. Um, nuclear wars, you know, an ever-present threat in a way that none of our ancestors have ever had to worry about. Um, and even automation itself for a lot of people is a scary thing that's happening right now. You know, there's a lot of uh, displacement um, and retraining that's required in a lot of different job markets all over the world because of automation, um, which is a trend that's been happening since the Industrial Revolution 150 years ago, but it's accelerated now by data and mm -hmm. machines and interconnectedness. So there's these unique problems that we face today, but we're also uniquely equipped to solve those problems. And data is the key in all of this. So we're recording this podcast today. I'm in New York and you are almost as far away as you could be in the world. 11 hours difference, right? Like we have to find these crazy times that we can meet up. Yeah, Kirill, uh, when, we, when, we were in the, when we were talking before starting recording, he was like, you look a little tired today. And I'm like, yeah, it's late. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, you're on the other side of the world. And then we record this. We record the data, the media from this. And then in, we can distribute it to anybody, anywhere in the world forever. And... Some people learn and hopefully are also entertained by this podcast. But, you know, we, can, we also have the opportunity to teach people about data science and what's possible. And that same kind of thing is happening in billions, trillions of different ways every day where um, by you accessing data on the Internet. I mean, that's it's magic. It's on a server somewhere. And in real time, no matter where you are in the world, you can get this information, share this information. Um, so this interconnectivity uh, from data allows our species to share information at light speed all around the planet. Uh, our ancestors couldn't have even imagined of the kinds of things that we very quickly take for granted. <laughs> it's amazing mm -hmm. 
how quickly you take an, like an iPhone for granted. And so on top of data facilitating this communication between us by storing information and allowing it to be transmitted at light speed, we also have machines that can identify patterns in data and based on a particular objective that we set for that machine, it can be trained on data and automate things in really magical ways. And this has, in just the last few years, especially accelerated with deep learning approaches that allow us to find signal in a large amount of data noise. And, um, and yeah, so, so I'm, I don't know, I've been talking for a long time. <laughs> basically, I'm kind of trying to get the audience to understand what I'm excited about here, and it's data. It's building models with data. It's deploying models and uh, making a positive impact uh, in the world. So, yeah, that's cool. That's what and I'm you, all you build about. models yourself, right? At uh, at Untapped and and for fun. Yeah, exactly. So um, I guess I have two kind of uh, main tracks in my life. So my day job, I'm the chief data scientist at a machine learning company called Untapped. And so we build algorithms in the human resources space. And this is a, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. So, uh, you know, finding the right people for the right job so that you can be satisfied uh, with your life and, you know, build a career. All those kinds of things are very important, but there's also um, critical uh, risks that we need to take into account um, around ensuring that we're, we're not incorporating bias into our algorithms. And so, there's also these kinds of things. You can incorporate analytics uh, into these kinds of models to ensure that human decision makers aren't um, unnecessarily biased against particular demographic groups. So, um, you know, so so yeah, so that's that's my day job. Um, we use natural language processing, deep learning models um, to to make all these things happen. And it's a tremendously exciting space to be working in. That's kind of my day job. But then on top of that, I have this kind of data science advocacy education that I'm yeah. obsessed with. And mm -hmm. it, it drives everyone else in my life crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, family, friends, my dog, my girlfriend. I think they all secretly kind of hate me mm -hmm. because I'm obsessed with spreading this kind of message about data science to the world. So... Um, I wrote a best-selling book called Deep Learning Illustrated. I um, have dozens and dozens of hours of technical uh, educational videos with hands-on code demos um, and lots of theory, particularly on deep learning historically and mm -hmm. covering all the major ranges of, of deep learning. And more recently now, I'm getting into what I call machine learning foundations, which is linear algebra, calculus, probability statistics, computer science, all these kinds of foundational subjects that allow people to be great data scientists or machine learning engineers. And um, I've kind of, I've come across this as an important niche over the last few years through doing all the teaching that I've been doing. I do many, many dozens of lectures a year. And um, I've, I've discovered that there's, that data scientists and machine learning engineers, they really want to understand these foundations better. 
And I could talk for a long time about why I think <laughs> that it's also really mm -hmm. good to know this stuff uh, and the practical benefits that it can have in your life. But, um, well, at some point we should get on with the actual topic of this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I just wanted to come and thank you. And that also uh, sheds light on like some some of your values and why why I like I'm I'm a big fan of yours. This obsession with uh, spreading the word of data science and helping people learn. You know, that's like you're not like you're not uh, you don't have to do it. You know, you're nobody is forcing you to do it. You have a fantastic career. You could just be. Uh, you know, working as, and and have this extra free time to yourself, but you're putting that time in, and you're you're creating this content, you're creating these videos, and um, like for you, it's very important to. Uh, I know from like the the way we were launching the course for you, it's very important to reach as many people as possible, um, and help as many people as possible, and like it uh, really reinforces for me the that you are the right person to take this podcast forward because it, this is what it's about. It's about helping people either get started into data science or continue growing or build a data science team, learn new trends and things like that. So yeah, I want to just say thank you for accepting this, this proposal. I'm very excited for, for what's coming ahead. Uh, it was a no brainer, Kirill. Yeah, this is a, yeah, such an amazing opportunity. No problem to get excited awesome. about this. Awesome. Thanks, man. Well, let's, uh, as you said, let's get on with the topic. And um, the topic for today is uh, 2020 is, is almost behind us. Uh, this is already December. We've got only a few weeks left of the year. And uh, what uh, we wanted to chat about, actually, when this episode goes live, there'll be like one week left of the year. Um, mm. What I wanted to chat about is are the top uh, technological breakthroughs. Uh, we originally agreed with John to uh, do three each, uh, bring three each. <laughs> but then when John <laughs> sent me his three, uh, I read through them and I realized that those are such great ones. And I am so lazy that we're just going <laughs> to stick with, <laughs> with his three. <laughs> uh, and so, but yeah, they're going to be they're good. And we're going to go into like first one, we're going to talk a little bit about, then the second one, we're going to go into more depth, and the third one, we're going to really hit it hard and see as much as we can get out of them. So, John, would you care to announce to us what the three breakthroughs are? Yeah, so we are going to talk about AlphaFold. We are going to talk about GPUs, graphics processing units. And the third and final topic, we will be talking about GPT-3 a groundbreaking natural language processing algorithm. Um, I also, I just realized this is something probably fun for your listeners, is this is the only episode that we're co-hosting. Um, we are co-hosting, sorry? It's, oh no, I guess we co-hosted the last one too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but this one is just the two of us. That's the only it's thing like that. It's just the two of us. No, but we had <laughs> you on the podcast before. Yeah, but I wasn't hosting. I was just a oh, guest. Oh, okay, okay. This is the only one where we're co-hosting and it's just the two of us. It's, yeah, it's a, it wasn't as groundbreaking as I thought it was when I started saying it. But uh, yeah, and also we're recording on a Monday. We haven't done that before. So, mm -hmm. you know, all these important things. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, let's get straight into it. So, uh, AlphaFold, groundbreaking... Um, news this was what october october or november this is november right like just recently november yeah november 2020 um 
So uh, you have a PhD in neuroscience. Do you mind explaining what, what the whole protein folding problem is all about? I would love to because I prepared notes on that. So it would be really okay. annoying if you took that part from me. <laughs> please, please go ahead. Um, <laughs> all right. So um, everyone's heard of DNA. So uh, DNA carries uh, like the blueprint of life. And so as a human, you inherit one blueprint from your mom, one from your dad. And each of those blueprints, what's it's a blue, what is it a blueprint for? It's a blueprint for proteins. So everyone's heard of proteins. You think about them as something you eat um, alongside carbs and fats, but uh, they play a much bigger role than just something that we eat. Proteins are part of everything in your body, everything that does work, every part of structure of your body. So your skin, uh, your muscles, your ability to see, your ability to think, is all a result of functioning proteins in your body. Um, so every single biological process in the world, in every organism, um, including uh, enzymes, which do work, so they're actually like actively doing work, um, any kind of digestion, building anything, tearing anything down, all of that is done by proteins. So they are you know, they're, they're like this fundamental structure for allowing all of life to exist. And DNA is the blueprint that, so there are proteins in your body that reads these DNA blueprints and figures out how to create other proteins that do everything else. Um, and so even more specifically, the DNA includes uh, sequences of letters, kind of like if you think about the way that um, computer code computers are fundamentally a sequence of, of zeros and ones, uh, the genetic code consists of there's four possible characters. And the exact sequence that those characters are in dictates um, specific sequences of what are called amino acids. So in humans, we have um, 20 possible amino acids. And the sequence that those amino acids are lined up in, in a long chain, is a protein. And mm -hmm. those those long chains of amino acids, they fold automatically into a specific protein shape, which allows that protein to do all the work, to allow you to see, to allow you to think, to allow you to have muscles and so on. So that, like, that, I mean, yeah. like if you put the amino acids into a chain, if you imagine it, it's like, it's a one dimensional, like just sequence of amino acids. But in reality, because we live in a three dimensional world, it's not always just a chain. Something happens to it and it, it takes like some, you know, like uh, there's like an, an edge here. Like it, it can basically how how to describe it in in audio. It it uh, yeah it folds is is the right word. Like this chain becomes a three dimension. It takes a three dimensional structure and um, based on the sequence of amino acids, um, it will automatically take a like a, a shape, a certain shape in the three dimensions. And um, yeah, is it always the same shape for the same uh, sequence of amino acids? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's always the same shape. And it's kind of an example that the viewer can imagine. If you think about red blood cells, so most people kind of know what a red blood cell looks like. It looks like a, mm -hmm. like a disc, like a donut mm -hmm. shape kind of. So yeah. that is a specific protein shape. Um, and so even though the, the protein ultimately is a long one-dimensional chain, it automatically folds up into that uh, blood cell structure that you're used to seeing in this donut shape. And... As an example, 
of how DNA influences protein, there's a common um, blood disease in Africa, uh, in Africa called sickle cell anemia. And in sickle cell anemia, remember how I was describing how DNA is a, it's a one-dimensional sequence of four possible letters. Mm -hmm. One of those letters is at a place, what we call a mutation, which is mm -hmm. a term everyone is aware of, even if you're not thinking about it at a DNA level. So this mutation of a single letter in this long string of DNA, it causes a different amino acid to occur in the long chain of amino acids that creates a blood cell. And because of that mutation, that single um, change, that single letter change of DNA, instead of the donut shape, the red blood cell takes on a sickle shape. So sickle is like, uh, like a curve. Like shape. hammer and sickle. Like, like the, what you used sickle. to cut, cut wheat. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, I could talk about sickle cell anemia for a long time and uh, the advantages actually. So it actually, it evolved. So that evolved as a way to avoid malaria, interestingly. Oh, wow. So that's why it's so prominent in Africa because I can't remember exactly now why, but something to do with the shape of that sickle cell, even though it causes a disease, that disease is less bad than malaria, which mm -hmm. that sickle cell shape effectively present, prevents. Interesting. So Interesting. Anyway, so there's I, an example of... So fu the function of a protein, um, in, the, in this example, like even though there's a slight mutation, right? But um, the, uh, so like the, the content of the protein is slightly different than the circular blood cell or disc-shaped blood cell. But also the important point to note here is that the function of a protein depends on its three-dimensional fold, right? If it's folded one way, mm -hmm. it's going to function too if it's folded different way. And I thought of an analogy here. Like if you take a piece of flat piece of A4 paper, and you, do, you can do origami with it, right? You can create a bird, you can create a box, you can create a tree, you can create a ship. It's the same piece of paper, but depending on what origami you create, it will have a different you know, function, quotation marks, not gonna fly, <laughs> right? But it, it will look different, it can fit into different you know, size uh, containers, it can, it can make different impressions, it can be you know, like used for s symbolism in different ways and so on. So, here it's a similar thing, it's just that the protein originally is not a two-dimensional paper, it's a one-dimensional string, but still you can kind of origami it into different shapes, into different folds. And uh, if the fold is wrong, that causes like diseases or causes different anomalies. Um, and uh, so the, the challenge here for uh, this being around for 50 years is uh, maybe you can talk about that. I, like I know just, just the, the superficial stuff about this. Yeah, the, the one key thing about that analogy, which I love that paper analogy, is that um, it, you, you touched on it earlier, is that the, the, the interesting distinction there is that um, with the same starting point, with the same strip of paper, in biology, in the actual, in, in real biological systems, you'd always end up with like a paper crane as yeah. your origami shape. It would be like, it would yeah. always dictate the crane. But when, yeah. you, but when you look at it as a person, you might look at this piece of paper and say, you know, I think this could be a turtle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but in biology, it always ends up being a crane. And so, yeah, so there's actually, there's a game called Fold It that any of our listeners can download. And it's a game that's been around for at least 10 years. And it allows you to 
get a amino acid sequence and you try to figure out how to fold it together into a nice 3D shape. And you kind of learn how to do these and you can develop an intuition around how to fold a protein properly. And lots of protein structure breakthroughs have happened from people playing this game Folded. Yeah, home. I heard of that. It's kind of like crowdsourcing, solving this uh, grand challenge. This challenge has been around for 50 years. And it's about like, if you have an input sequence of protein, uh, like a protein, an input sequence of amino acids, what shape is it going to take? Like, can you predict uh, the shape that it's going to take? Um, so that's the challenge. Why are we talking about this on a machine learning data science AI podcast? Yeah, so um, the... So yeah, so then there's this specific um, machine learning challenge that is the same as this kind of human folding challenge, um, which is CASP, the Critical Assessment of Structure Prediction, CASP, C-A-S-P. And yeah, as you say, it's been around for a while. And now recently it happens, this competition happens every two years. So um, they just did the competition, the 2020 competition. Uh, there were 100 teams in the competition this year. And... Um, there's a in every year the 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 challenge is um, to you get a bunch of sequences of amino acids and the machine learning algorithms have to try to predict what the shape will be. So you get this, you get told what the sequence is, you get the the paper <laughs> cut out, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you have to say this is going to be a paper crane or this is going to be a turtle or whatever, and. Um, it's hard. It's a very, very hard task. These amino acid sequences can be hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands long. And so the structures can be very, very complicated. Um, so the, they use um, a test that the like metric of performance is how close the real um, protein shape is to the predicted shape. Um, so, you know, it's a 3D structure. And so you can measure the distance between, okay, well, this Part of it should be over here in the top right-hand corner, but the algorithm got it in the middle instead of the top right-hand mm -hmm. corner. So there's a big distance. So mm -hmm. it, it's like um, you have this global distance uh, score where zero is the worst possible score and 100 is a perfect score where there's no distance at all. So the mm -hmm. algorithm is perfect. Um, to give you a sense of how things have been happening recently, in 2008, the best score in this competition, this CASP competition, was 40. Mm -hmm. uh, Eight years later, in 2016, the best score was 40. <laughs> <laughs> so things were moving around along at a turtle's pace. Um, but then uh, two years later, in 2018, the DeepMind team, so there's this company that probably many listeners have heard of, DeepMind. Um, they're famous for other kinds of algorithms like AlphaGo, um, mm -hmm. which also is it's interesting because it's also for kind of intuition. So the board mm -hmm. game Go, most popular game in the world. Many people in the West haven't heard of it, but uh, it's uh, very, very popular in Asia. It's kind of like chess is uh, in the West mm -hmm. in terms of popularity. And um, uh, it's, it's played by intuition, geometrically much more, compli geometrically much more complex. So for example, uh, in this protein structure um, case, the, there's something called Ligenthal's paradox, which is that the degrees of freedom in an amino acid chain means that there's an astronomically possible, uh, possibly large number of confirmations. So there's 10 to the power of 300 possible shapes for a typical amino acid sequence, which is if you try to compute by force, by comparing all of those 10 to the 300 different possible confirmations, 
it would take more time than we have in the universe on a computer mm -hmm. by brute force. So you have mm -hmm. to have these kinds of intuitions that people use when they're playing the folded game in the same way that when you're playing Go, you kind of, you play by intuition instead of having a lot of rigid rules. Um, mm -hmm. So you just kind of, this feels right. And so those are the kinds of problems that we've had a really hard time training computers to play. Anyway, I've been talking a lot, Kirill, but... Uh, <laughs> no, all uh, good, all good. <laughs> so, so AlphaFold is from Google so, DeepMind, right? So AlphaFold, like AlphaGo, is out of Google DeepMind. And um, so DeepMind was an independent company, and I think it was 2014 or something like around that year, uh, year. They were acquired by Google. Um, For a billion Because dollars. they had some really cool... Yeah. Because they had a great mm -hmm. Atari video game playing machine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, anyway, so, yeah, so it so, took uh, them two years, two years, and they managed to crack it. And what uh, you didn't say the score in 2018, yeah, Casp, what did they get? Yeah, they got in, like in, in 2018 in Casp, they got 60. So remember, 2008, there was a, the best algorithm was 40. 2016, the best algorithm was 40. 2018, with his Google DeepMind team introducing AlphaFold, the score was 60. So this is a huge improvement, a 50% yep. improvement after many, many years of, of almost no progress. Um, the, and the only thing that's even crazier is that now in 2020, AlphaFold 2 obtained a score of 92.4. Wow. Which, um, according to some reports I read, that's about the same as X-ray crystallography, which is kind of the manual gold standard way of doing it, not in a machine, but actually getting into the lab and very laboriously um, getting these results. So on moderately difficult proteins, AlphaFold 2 scored a 90 on average, whereas other algorithms scored just um, 75. 40. So yeah, it's a huge 75. Um, and this uh, crystallography, it costs like $120,000 and takes a year per protein to to do. Whereas uh, now we yeah. have a machine learning thing. And, th and that's like, there's two implications from this. First one, that by knowing how to how these proteins fold, by if we have an algorithm that can predict how they fold, that, that can potentially open up a plethora of applications and research. You know, like I, I saw uh, briefly on the DeepMind website that, for instance, it, we could look into creating proteins that go into atmosphere and collect carbon. We could create proteins that um, uh, like create a coating that prevents, uh, I don't know, dirt sticking to buildings and, and windows. Uh, we could create proteins that go and like, you know, like fix stuff inside our body. Like we, we could become from it, like go from just uh, technology and uh, bits and bytes and, uh, uh, I don't know, electrons, we could start manipulating things with proteins. And there's there's huge room for for uh, research there, and that, that could open it up. But the second implication is that we've, we're seeing one of the biggest grand challenges of biology being solved through machine learning, right? That, that is one of the first massive examples where, yes, okay, we can... We can uh, uh, apply machine learning to gaming. We can apply machine learning to marketing. We can apply machine learning to I don't know, like satellite imagery and and you know self driving cars and things like that. Those are great. But here we saw we're actually applying machine learning or DeepMind in this case is applying machine learning to solving to doing research to to solving a problem that humans haven't been able to solve for fifty plus years in research. 
Now it can be solved with artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning. And that is like, that's going to open up a new opportunity as well for machine learning researchers to think about, oh, what, what else? Maybe we can apply machine learning to solve some physics uh, problems. And maybe to, uh, you know, create the, that unified theory of um, quantum mechanics versus, versus special theory of relativity. You know, like things that we as humans haven't been able to solve. Maybe that can be solved with AI. And that's, that's also very exciting. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, there's definitely, in terms of, you know, probably the number of data scientists employed in the world, you know, you nailed it with, you know, it is commercial applications like marketing and finance, um, yeah. you know, video, video games, that kind of thing. But there are thousands, tens of thousands of, of research groups in academia that apply machine learning to, to uh, medical problems, biological problems, chemistry problems, physics problems. Um, and so I guess it's, so I guess it's it's maybe the big thing here that's really interesting is that a company like DeepMind that is owned by an advertising company mm-hmm. um, that they're given so much so many resources and you do need a lot of resources to tackle these kinds of problems by the way so this is something that is worth mentioning quickly is that to train. Um, this model, it takes several weeks on a machine with 128 TPUs, tensor processing units. So we're going to talk about those more in the next segment, uh, tensor processing units, which are a specialized kind of GPU, but these are, uh, you know, very powerful, um, matrix multiplication machines, basically. Um, and that's working with a a training data set of 170,000 known proteins where we know, um, the structure and um, and the reason why it is so computationally expensive, why we need so many GPUs to do this processing, is because we use uh, this. This is one of the um, I don't I don't want to say negative aspects, but um, you know people get really excited about deep learning, but typically deep learning requires very large data sets, long training times, very big models with a lot of parameters, and it's no different here. So they use deep learning um, specifically using something called attention. Um, and we'll talk about attention later again when we talk about GPT-3. Um, and then after they do that deep learning, they also apply some refinements based on biological research. So they take um, into consideration evolutionarily related sequences, something called multiple sequence alignment. Um, and so anyway, the, the, the reason why I was bringing that up is, is this point that um, Google, an advertising company, is willing to pay huge salaries to people at DeepMind, pay for very expensive compute resources to allow people to be doing this biological research. And, and it is it is super cool. Um, yeah, the applications yeah. that you mentioned, Kirill, are, yeah. It's, possible, po- you know. possible applications. And uh, I, I was um, watching a video by uh, Lex Friedman on this topic, and he said that, he thinks that uh, potentially there'll be Nobel Prizes, not necessarily for this solution, but for oh, things wow. that come out of it. You know, like the, the things it unlocks, right. researchers can take and then uh, create stuff with it and then get like uh, maybe a Nobel Prize one day. And that will be, that'll be a huge testament as well. So we're entering a new era, right? Like when 10 years from now, 
as we get closer to the technological singularity where AI becomes so powerful that it just creates you know, Nobel Prize discoveries every single day, uh, <laughs> we're getting closer and closer to that already. We're starting to feel it. Very interesting. Anyway, we've been, uh, we've been on this one for a while. Let's move on to topic number two. That was really cool. That was November. Yep. There's just one last thing that I want to mention about this. Sure, sure. Um, which is that, um, so to give you a sense, so people, so I said that there's 170,000 known protein structures. Um, and that might sound like a lot. It might sound like we have a good understanding of a lot of the different kinds of proteins that exist in the world, but we're not even close. So um, because we were relying on those expensive time-consuming methods like X-ray crystallography before, even though there's been 170,000 identified, there are 180 million wow. known proteins. Um, and that wow. number goes up by many millions every year. Um, as we wow. discover proteins and other forms of life on the planet. So what, 0.1%, so, we've done 0.1%. Right, and now all of a That's sudden, crazy. I mean, it's gonna be a bunch of TPUs cranking, I guess at Google, mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah. we can now, we can, we can uncover the structure of so many more proteins. But despite these big efforts on protein structure, there's a huge limitation still today, and it's gonna be a long time I think, before this is cracked, which is that we talked about proteins doing all this work in bodies. Mm -hmm. Doing work isn't something that a fixed structure does. The vast majority of those proteins, they're moving. So they have mm -hmm. specific kinds of motion. There's a fourth dimension um, mm -hmm. that we need to be taking into account. And that problem, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface at all. So well. something exciting things to come. Um, maybe over the coming decade. Yeah, quantum computing. That's, that's uh, maybe we'll solve that. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Anyway, okay. We wanted well, to, uh, it, yeah, we're, we've talked about this for so long. Yeah, we should get yeah, on. Yeah, let's GPUs. move on to next one. So next topic um, uh, is uh, GPUs, right? So John, am I getting it right that when you uh, recommended that topic, you, uh, you had in mind the, NVIDIA GeForce GTX 3080 and 3090 that got released recently. Eh, I mean, kind of. I mean, it was, you know, maybe I was inspired by the recent release of those NVIDIA chips. The kind of the thing that I wanted to talk about, because we're talking about kind of, the, you know, the year in retrospect, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, it, so it's just this general idea of, of, of GPUs um, and... Uh, how much more powerful they're getting, how quickly that's happening, this kind of phenomenon. You know, a few years ago, as a data scientist, you didn't need to, to do any, any work on a GPU. Mm -hmm. But today, if you're going to be using deep learning models that are anywhere near the size, the, you know, the state of the art in almost any field, you're going to be using at least one GPU, in mm -hmm. a lot of cases, several and mm -hmm. so this is kind of this big trend that's been happening. And yeah, you're right that these, these recent releases um, have, you know, they, they were on my mind. But yeah, there's, there's, there's a few things I had to talk about on this topic, but um, I'll open the floor to you because I've been talking a lot. <laughs> okay, well, I, all I have uh, on uh, GPUs is, um, so I was chatting with uh, my friend from Melbourne, uh, David, and he was super excited because he got his hands on a, a GeForce 3080, um, and he basically these uh, graphics cards were released in 
uh, or GPUs um, were released in October by NVIDIA. And uh, you actually had to get onto a uh, wait list and you know, pay in advance to, to get that. And uh, they're mostly used for gaming because they allow to process uh, graphics and... And, and uh, crypto mining. And crypto mining, yeah, in some cases, yeah. I guess. That's yeah. a huge... That's, so a few years ago, um, at, at I guess two years ago, three years ago, yeah. the first yeah. time that Bitcoin prices skyrocketed, yeah. um, NVIDIA GPUs became extremely expensive and stores, like it was extremely difficult. I was building deep learning servers and it wanted mm. to install GPUs in them and I couldn't buy GPUs <laughs> I was looking for at the time. It was this GTX 1080 Ti was the big one that everyone wanted and I could not buy them anywhere. And when I did find them, I'd have to like get in a taxi to like a far part of Brooklyn from Manhattan. And then you'd get in the store and they'd have limit one per customer. Wow. Um, and that, that was because of Bitcoin mining. So it's, I, I while, you know, uh, graphics cards grew up for the purpose of rendering graphics for video games, yeah. they've really, they, I think they're disproportionately used today for Bitcoin mining. Um. That that and deep learning as well, right? Yeah, and deep learning. It's probably a distant third, but for our audience, the most important use case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, so, yeah, he got his hands on to, on one of these. It's really cool. He's loving it. Um, and uh, yeah, also they're used for deep learning to make sure that uh, like. You need to process many operations, like when you have a neural net, you have lots of simple operations, but you have tons of them, right? Depending on how big your neural network is and how um, how many weights, how many layers, and so on. You have lots of operations, so a CPU can uh, crank out more complex tasks, but a GPU is more powerful for deep learning because you can get lots of operations happening simultaneously and thereby um, calculate your weights faster. That's that's as I understand it. That's correct. Yeah, spot on. Okay, cool. Um, so what have been the developments in 2020 in the GPU space? So to give a sense of perspective, that GTX 1080 Ti that I had to spend about a grand on and tear out of the hands of some Bitcoin, Bitcoin miner in Brooklyn, um, that had 11 gigs of memory on it. Um, and so now these latest ones, these 3090s, they have more than double the memory. So 24 gigs of memory um, and they cost a little bit more. So on top of being on that wait list and having to apply, um, they're about 1500 bucks. But having that more than double memory is critical because it means that you can train a model with more than twice as many weights in it. Uh -huh. um, so this is like a key limitation on these GPUs is how much onboard memory you have because that specifically limits how big the model that you can put on it is. Yeah. Um, so, so they have two so main parameters: yeah. the, the sorry, the the number of cores and the amount of memory. Number of cores is how fast it can be trained, and amount of memory is how big the model uh, that you input can be. Yeah, exactly. And the actually, in terms of like speed, um, there wasn't there isn't that much of a difference over the last few years. So. That 1080 Ti a few years ago that I bought is 1.5 gigahertz, uh, and then the latest ones today are 1.7. I mean, that's still that's like percentage-wise over just a few years. You're talking about 
you know, 10 or 15%. Or, but um, but the, the memory increase is huge. Um, but that's just talking about the kinds of servers that you would put in like a home computer. If you're mm -hmm. talking about a big server rack, you can put in way more powerful um, GPUs. So the state of the art from NVIDIA is this A100 GPU, which has mm -hmm. 80 gigs of onboard memory. Um, but I mean, it's not, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the hobbyist data scientist, for, that's for sure, because one of those costs $12,500 just for wow. one. Um, and, and this is kind of, this was the kind of general trend that I wanted to talk about is just these GPUs have become so important that that kind of cost is useful to enough people that NVIDIA makes these because mm -hmm. by being able to train those big models, the commercial utility to somebody is even bigger than that $12,500 cost. Mm -hmm. And so it's worthwhile. And the actual, the very specific thing that made me interested in talking about this topic is something that NVIDIA makes called the DGX Workstation, which mm -hmm. um, it has four of these A100 GPUs. Um, so each one of those is 80 gigs of memory. So it has a total of 320 gigs of GPU memory. It also has um, 512 gigs of system memory, um, a 64 core CPU, and it comes in a 91 pound fridge <laughs> all together wow. in one place and they charge guess how much they charge for that so so remember that the individual the four each one of the four gpus is twelve thousand dollars so how much well, do you think nvidia would charge for this fridge? fifty thousand <laughs> two hundred thousand dollars no way <laughs> two hundred thousand dollars yeah it's crazy that's crazy man but what i don't um, get john is like anyway, why would so, you why would you set it up at home or even at at your office as a company versus using like online solutions like AWS or Oracle Cloud or or something like why why go through all this effort especially if it's going to uh, deprecate over a few years and you're going to need to buy a new one as opposed to just going and setting up an AWS instance for whatever size you need. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I can actually I can share for people who are interested in the um, in the show notes. We can share um, my PC part picker build um, for the builds that I made, and you can get a sense of the price. So at the time, those GTX with so I'd get two of those into one of mine. Those were about a thousand each. So two thousand dollars for the GPUs. The whole rig would cost about four thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Today, if I was to build the same rig. It would be cheaper because the GPUs would be a lot cheaper if I was using the same ones as a few years ago. So I could probably build it for about $2,500. Mm -hmm. So you just, we did the math of what is that going to cost me $2,500 as a one-off fixed cost as mm -hmm. opposed to the cost of paying to be training in the cloud in an ongoing basis. And mm -hmm. with the models that we were training at Untapped, with the size of them and how often we knew we were going to be retraining them, it was a no-brainer. It paid for itself in about three months. Wow. Okay. So that's that's another skill as a data scientist you can have. You can be like an an accountant kind of uh, as skilled at skill to your portfolio is in um, understanding what are the cost benefits of either using AWS or having an on on premise uh, ser server setup. And that I think that would be valuable to any company, especially like smaller businesses who need to be careful about uh, the 
the cost? Yeah, there's there's kind of it depending on exactly how what kinds of models you're working on, um, the the cost benefit will swing strongly one way or the other. So in our case, um, you know these relatively small models today, where I can fit it on t two GPUs, which is still huge in historical terms, um, but that we're training those models continuously. That's one kind of situation where then you're going to want to buy um, the server yourself. The other kind of situation is where you have an absolutely enormous model. So I was talking about the protein folding model, AlphaFold 2, that was trained on 128 TPUs, tensor processing units, which are a Google specialized kind of GPU specifically for dealing with um, uh, deep learning models, training deep learning models. And so if you were going to be training that kind of model, so if you're a small business and you're like, wow, we have this use case where we're going to need to train 128 GPUs, well, then all of a sudden, you know, it, it probably does, it would be like, that's a huge investment to buy a model of that size, a, a, a machines of that size. Um, but you might say, well, we're only going to need it for a week and then we'll have trained mm -hmm. the model and we're done. And so then in that case, you're, you're much, much better off um, using cloud scaling to do that. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you mentioned you had two GPUs in your setup, $1,000 each. Um, if I think a few words are worth mentioning on parallelizing uh, or using two in, in, you know, in combination. Let's say you have two GPUs with 10 gigabytes of uh, memory each. Um, does that necessarily mean that you can upload a 20 gigabyte uh, model into, into them? How does this whole this, this setup with parallelizing work? Yeah, great question. So the modern deep learning libraries or the modern, they're actually automatic differentiation libraries. So they're designed yeah. for doing partial derivative calculus, um, but we think of them as deep learning libraries like TensorFlow and PyTorch. Mm -hmm. um, the, the modern versions of those libraries allow you to split parts of your computational graph. So different parts of your model across multiple GPUs. That's a, that's a re relatively recent um, idea over the last few years. Um, up until probably just two years ago, three years ago, um, you you didn't use multiple GPUs to split your model. You would only use multiple GPUs to split your training data set. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that's a, that's a really great question. And it's something that has, has really just become um, possible recently or, or easy recently with yeah. these libraries like TensorFlow2 and, and PyTorch. What I read is that if you um, if you just take blindly the two GPUs and train your model on them, then what will happen is your model will be copied into the first GPU and into the second GPU, and then it'll be trained in parallel, right? So like the data set, the training data set will be used half here, half here. But if you actually want uh, to uh, use them in a different way, uh, you need to think your... Uh, deep learning, you need to think through the architecture of your deep learning model. So for instance, you uh, create know, eight layers, then you take the first four layers and you load them into the first GPU, and then the result from that goes into the second GPU, and then the second the second half of the deep learning model is there. And so that way, it's um, they, then you're using the memory, not just copy-pasting the same content, but you can actually load a bigger model into the whole system but you really need to think through the architecture and how you're going to split the workload between the two ggpus i found that very interesting 
Yeah, that was a great summary of, of what's possible. And of course, to go one little step further is that you're not constrained even to the number of GPUs on a single machine on, say, a single mm -hmm. server. You can also scale up to, and that's how you end up, like there's not a single machine at Google DeepMind where they have 128 GPUs plugged into one CPU. They have many servers running, I assume. I don't actually mm -hmm. quote me on that, but that would be all what you would do, I assume, every time. <laughs> I'm not mm -hmm. aware of it, uh, of Absolutely. the kind of situation where it's one server with 128 GPUs. Gotcha. Um, okay, so that's GPUs. Anything else to add on that? No, 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 that's it. Okay, okay, cool. Thank you. And final topic, uh, GPT-3, right? Exciting. It kind of like combines a lot of things we already spoke about, uh, such as um, ca calculations, uh, GPUs, uh, interconnectivity on the internet and things like that. So I'll, I'll let you take it away. What's GPT-3 all about? Yeah, I'm going to start off with a poem. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. The SEC said, Musk, your tweets are a blight. They really could cost you your job if you don't stop all this tweeting at night. Then Musk cried, why? The tweets I wrote are not mean. I don't use all caps, and I'm not sure that my tweets are clean. But your tweets can move markets, and that's why we're sore. You may be a genius and a billionaire, but that doesn't give you the right to be a bore. <laughs> um, so Did you that make that one up? was written by a machine. A machine, no, that's, no way. That's, that's, that's by GPT-3. No way. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow, what and input so, did, um, did it so get? G um, it was something like um, a Elon Musk poem, I think, was, wow. was the input. And then it gave that as the output. Um, I didn't do it. I got that from an Economist article. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so this model, GPT-3, so it stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer 3. Um, and it's out of a, um, a research outfit. It used to be a um, nonprofit, but now they do commercial work too, called mm -hmm. OpenAI. Mm -hmm. And Elon Musk is the most well-known backer of, um, of OpenAI. And so they've been They've made a lot of different models over the years, and typically they open source them. But this one, GPT three, they um, they have not open sourced. Um, they say that it's because they think that in the wrong hands it could do a lot of bad things. I think it's also because they want to make money off of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then they go and uh, give an exclusive license to Microsoft. Well, sell, I guess. Oh yeah, license. I didn't know that. Yeah, Microsoft has a has been bragging about having an exclusive license to GPT three, and like it'll keep the API open so anybody can use it. But you know, like in the wrong hands, quotation marks, <laughs> it can do the wrong things. And let's give it to Microsoft. Yeah, I mean they're like the good guy, big bad tech company these days, aren't they? I mean, mm. in the nineties, it was a completely different story. But it's interesting now. They get you know you never see them when you talk about. Um, governments uh, looking at uh, monopolies or breaking up big tech. You're never talking mm -hmm. about Microsoft these days, which is interesting, even though they are actually as big as any of the other big tech companies today. Yeah. Um, no, that's super interesting. I didn't know that. 
Okay, well, what what uh, is um, GPT three, right? Like, you you give us the the what the abbreviation means, but um, like what what is uh, inside? I know we can't see it because it's yeah. not open source. Yeah. So the key. So in that. So so generative pre-trained transformers. So we can break down each of the three letters of GPT. So mm -hmm. generative generative means that it generates some output. So you could have, um, you know, so if you have generative adversarial networks, those create um, images. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a generative model. It produces something. In this case, it produces typically text. Mm -hmm. Pre-trained means that it's already trained on a very large set of data. Um, mm -hmm. I believe it's trained on all of the English language internet, but I actually didn't mm -hmm. write that down. And so listeners shouldn't quote me on saying that. Um, they trained on lots of stuff like Wikipedia and uh, uh, the internet, like uh, like cor corpuses, two different huge corpuses, corpuses of books. Um, and moreover, like to, to your point that uh, generative, like it, it generates data. I also read that when they combine generative pre-training, what they did is like they they not only used labeled data, but they actually got the um, algorithm to label unlabeled data and then train itself on that mm, data that it's semi-supervised, semi-supervised learning. Yeah, that's that is crazy. Yeah, I actually I didn't know about that semi-supervised part. Um, so that is, I'm really glad to know that. Hmm. Um, that would help generate a lot more data. Um, tricky to get right, but when you get it right, it can be very powerful. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the last letter, T, transformer, um, is perhaps the most interesting of GP and T. And um, so transformer architectures, these came into the limelight two or three years ago with BERT, um, which was a which was kind of the, the first big famous transformer architecture. So these are like um, recurrent neural networks, which um, have been around now for 20 years, but have become prominent in the last few years. So these are kinds of neural networks that deal with sequences of information. So uh, very often natural language data. So written words or spoken words, but would also technically work on, you know, financial time series data, um, mm -hmm. any kind of sequential data that occur in one dimension. Um, but what makes these transformer architectures so powerful is that um, they have something called self-attention, which allows um, the model weights to, um, to attend to particular parts of sequences of language and to really emphasize those. And so it allows the model to look back to much earlier on in a sentence or earlier on in a paragraph um, and to, so by attending to, to two different parts of a long sentence or a paragraph, it can tie those, it can tie those two together. So um, up until these kinds of transformer architectures, if you had, you know, a sentence like Kirill um, is hosting the podcast, he also runs Super Data Science, um, the, the early sequential models, the early recurrent neural networks wouldn't have been able to make that connection between Kirill and he. Mm -hmm. But with these transformers, with these self-attention mechanisms, we get these 
very long sequences where that same concept, the idea of Kirill being the main male subject in the text, that kind of idea can be held for long, long sequences, which allows it to, for example, write an entire poem about Elon Musk. <laughs> well, thanks for explaining that. That's really interesting. Um, and so for the viewer, we can put in the show notes um, a link to um, a blog post by a gentleman named Jay Alomar. So there's a, a post that he wrote called The Illustrated Transformer that I thought gives a really good introduction to the topic. Uh, and I love it because I wrote a book called Deep Learning Illustrated. So I love kind of illustrations of uh, deep learning uh, and data science concepts. And I think he did a really great job in that blog post. Mm. Um, so the, the big trend in these transformers, so I said we've had them for a few years now. So BERT was a famous early one. Um, it led to another one called Elmo. Mm -hmm. um, it also led to, led to Roberta. Um, and with those kinds of models, we were, we were seeing bigger and bigger um, numbers of parameters. So um, the, the biggest BERT model has 340 million parameters, um, which is huge, absolutely enormous. What, what are these parameters? Um, yeah, so when, so the kinds of, the simplest kinds of uh, models are in, in machine learning and data science, are probably uh, regression models. So mm -hmm. um, uh, the, it, the very, very simplest kind of regression model would just be trying to fit a line to, to points on a, a two-dimensional grid. So mm -hmm. in order to do that, you need a slope of the line, and then you mm -hmm. need to know how high the line should be on the grid, uh, something mm -hmm. called a y-intercept. So that very, very simple regression model, it has two parameters, the slope of the line and the height of the line. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so it's so these parameters are um, are are numbers numbers mm -hmm. they're just numbers mm -hmm. that are learned um, based on training data. So in that case of the very simple example, where you know the slope of that line and how high the line is is based on whatever dots you have on your two dimensional grid, and it tries to fit those dots um, to the best of its ability. When we have a much more complicated problem, like uh, write a poem about Elon Musk, mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. we can't do that with two parameters. <laughs> mm -hmm, we need many more parameters to do it well. And so uh, these transformer architectures like BERT, they have 340 million different parameters to allow that to so happen. So parameters in a deep learning setup, are they like weights? Yeah, exactly. So um, in, in neural network models, so um, including deep learning models, we have two different kinds of parameters. There's weights and biases. And mm -hmm. the, the vast, vast, vast majority, especially in large architectures, are the weights. But the mm -hmm. biases play a critical role as well. In fact, going right back to that um, line analogy, the weights are all like the line slopes. So they determine mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. the, the slope of the relationship between uh, two variables in a way. Yeah. And the, the biases determine these kinds of offsets, these vertical offsets for those numbers. Okay. So like when you say uh, BERT had 340 million uh, parameters, it's just like we can imagine a neural network with 340 million um, weights 
Yeah, synapses, so about the same order of magnitude number of uh, nodes in, in the neural network. Uh, no, there would be far fewer nodes than weights. Because, oh, that's right. <laughs> what am I thinking? Um, yeah, because they are yeah. interconnected. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, exactly. So maybe there'd be something like uh, 300,000 or 3 million nodes or something like this, maybe 10 million. I don't know exactly. Okay, gotcha. So that was BERT. And then, and then um, how did that evolve? Um, so there's these kinds of two directions tugging. So on the one hand, there's people building bigger and bigger models because those bigger and bigger models tend to get slightly better state-of-the-art results. Um, mm -hmm. But there's also a school of thought that says, this is crazy. These models are getting way too big. They take too long to train. They're too expensive to train. Um, in production, they take too long to run. And so, um, so there's this other this other direction where people are making some of these architectures smaller. So there's one called Distilbert, which has a quarter mm -hmm. of the number of um, parameters as BERT. So 66 million instead of 340 million. And um, it has comparable performance. So people are trying to come up with ways of how can we arrange these architectures so that they perform really well, even if they're not quite as big. Anyway, these GPT models um, from OpenAI they're definitely firmly in the camp of getting bigger and bigger and bigger because um, so GPT-2, the predecessor of GPT-3, which came out a couple of years ago, it had 1.5 billion parameters. So, um, you know, about seven times more than uh, six times Bert. more than BERT. But that is nothing, nothing at all compared to GPT-3 which has 175 billion parameters. So if you went from that jump over a couple of years from BERT to GPT-2, where you're like, okay, there's six times as many, um, there's now a hundred times as many <laughs> in GPT-3. Um, so, so yeah, it's really crazy. And, and you can experience for yourself as a listener, um, while GPT-3 isn't open sourced, only Bill Gates has access to it, <laughs> um, personally. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the biggest open source model, if I remember correctly, it's out of Facebook. It's called Megatron. And, uh, um, Megatron is NVIDIA. It's NVIDIA. I'm yeah. glad that you were able to correct me on that. 8.3 um, 8 billion parameters. Which is, yeah, still absolutely huge. If it wasn't for the existence of something like GPT-3, you would assume it was, you know, the biggest thing around. And uh, you can use it at something called talktotransformer.com. So you can uh -huh. go there and you can enter. So you could say something like Elon Musk poem and see what comes out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You can experience what these architectures are like yourself. Um, so... I don't know. So the, the, the main kind of big thing that was supposed to be really exciting about GPT-3 is that it allows things like what they call zero-shot learning. So without mm -hmm. any training on data, you can give it a task and it, and it does it. So you can say, translate English to French cheese and mm -hmm. it will return to you fromage. Um, so that was, I don't know, that was supposed to be really exciting. And there's tons of applications. You might have noted some um, yourself, Kirill, but I just have a quick list here of things like it can generate code. 
Um, it can create a simple user interface uh, from the description of a user interface. Mm-hmm. It can create regex. Um, it can generate a plot. It can generate quiz questions on some topic. It can even, if you're familiar with neural networks in deep learning, it can write Keras code for the layers of a neural network and even do the data set imports. So you could say like, I want an MNIST. I want the MNIST uh, data as an input, the MNIST handwritten digits as an input, and I want 10 ReLU layers um, all densely connected and GPT-3 could um, create the Keras code for you. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of cool. I don't know if you came across other applications. Yeah, I, I got a, a few as well. Um, so you mentioned translation. Um, it integrates with, you can integrate with Excel. Uh, so you can like, uh-huh. um, based on a few, for instance, you could have, like I saw an example of, um, you could have uh, two columns like a state or, or country and population. And you could like have United States and have the population number. You could have like, I don't know, Brazil, the population number, and then you enter a third country. And then instead of putting a population, you can call GPT-3 uh, and it will, and you, as an input, you give it the, the everything above. So the name of names of the columns, plus the two rows that you already have, plus you give it the name of the country that you're already putting in. And it will automatically understand that you are building a table with columns and rows about countries and their populations. And it will find uh, from its uh, information that it has, it'll find the, the population of the new country that you added. Um, it can write SQL queries for you. Uh, it can also work with images because like the way it was trained, it went through a lot of um, uh, internet data and uh, some images are stored. I think the key here is like they're stored in SVG format, which can be read as text. And so it can actually draw simple images. Um, I think the the main thing it comes down to here is that now, right now on the planet exists this GPT-3 algorithm that is all pre-trained. You don't have to do anything to it. And it's being pre-trained based on what you said at the start of the podcast. Like we live in a time of interconnectivity where interconnectivity from data allows our species to share information. So... It's used that this is kind of like starting to become like sci-fi uh, Terminator type of thing. You know, GPT-3 should probably be called Skynet or something like that. Like it's been pre-trained and all this information has a huge amount of data that it's seen and it can answer almost any question. It can, um, it can help you identify, it can help you create things like code and apps and so on. I even watched a video where this one guy, it's called, we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's called What It's Like to Be a Machine. So this guy uh, started, uses the GPT-3 API to talk with it, like ask questions, and comes back in text. But then he, what he did is he uh, used some uh, avatar simulations to come up with a uh, 3D avatar for GPT-3. And then he edited the video so that now every time it answers, this is avatar answering. And it's actually him talking to this machine is asking questions like, are you sentient? Yes, I'm sentient. Are you able to, you know, like, do you have feelings? Yes, I do. Like it, it actually is talking like a, um, like a machine. And the interesting thing that uh, I also found in that, that same video is that GPT-3 is actually able to make jokes 
and it's able to lie. It will tell you that uh, a false information, but you're like, but that's wrong. But then it's like, uh, it it will lie to you knowingly. It will know when it's telling you the wrong information. So you got to be careful about what you ask hmm. it, because it can uh, either make a joke, and and after you probe it a bit more, you'll see that it's a joke, or it can lie to you. And when you ask it why you're lying, it it will tell you something like, it's in my best interest to be lying to you right now. So like some crazy stuff is going on with this GPT-3 thing, uh, but it can be, I think it uh, could be very useful. And uh, another thing I found is that in order to train it to the level where it's at right now, um, uh, Google, oh no, it's not Google, OpenAI had to run it for a thousand uh, petaflop per second days. Uh, that is about 10 to the power of 15 neural network operations per second in a day times a thousand days. So basically no individual human on the planet who has the resources to train it to such a level. So um, it's really cool that it's pre-trained. We can just go ahead and use it. And and uh, yeah, the applications can be outstanding. Yeah, but um, it is still really, really dumb. <laughs> we should be very clear to the listeners that you know all the things we've said it probably sounds really amazing uh and really scary but in fact it doesn't uh you know it doesn't have uh an understanding of anything <laughs> uh it's just a, a large number of model weights and all that it does is it has it predicts the probability of the next word in a sequence so mm. it just says, okay, given the last words that have occurred, what is a high probability next word? And then it gives you one of the, you know, on average, it'll give you the most probable word next. And mm. so it's, uh, it's, it's very simple um, from that respect. Um, you know, it, it can't think or reason in any way. Um, and to give you a sense of, of how dumb it is, um, you know, people, people, and, and people. You can see lots of examples online of, of very, uh, you know, simple examples. So for all these really great examples that we've been talking about on this show, you could start with the same starting point, the same seed phrase to get it going, and end up getting results that are nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you can experience that yourself if you go to talktransformer.com. You know, you can one one fun thing that I like to do is I like to take like my LinkedIn summary of myself. So like, it's like a five bullet point bio of myself. I put that in and then I see what the transformer architecture spits out. And sometimes it'll come up with, I'm like, wow, that is eerily like my career um, Mm -hmm. or the kinds of things that I'd like to do. And then other times it outputs complete nonsense. And so the Guardian newspaper in the UK, um, which is a very popular newspaper around the world, they put an op-ed piece, an opinion piece uh, titled, A Robot Wrote This Entire Article, Are You Scared Yet Human? And in the same kind of line is that conversation that you described with the avatar where, you know, you're asking, are mm-hmm. you a person? And it says, uh, you know, do you have feelings? And it says yes. So there's this op-ed that, that seems really convincing um, and is, you know, really really compelling, uh, very well written. But when you read the fine print at the bottom, it says that um, the first paragraph prompt was written by a person. 
And it's that, mm-hmm. that first paragraph is one of the best paragraphs. It really digs you into it. Um, mm. But that was written by a person. And then based on that, they ran GPT-3 eight times. So they mm. got eight different outputs. And then they cherry-picked. They copied and mm. pasted the best parts from each of the eight uh, and, and made the op-ed from that. So... You know, it goes to show, as, as amazing as it is, um, in a lot of situations, it wouldn't convince you, you know, that, that it is actually a, a sentient being. Thanks. Thanks, John. I was getting really hyped up about it. Thanks for uh, putting it into, like, uh, the, the, in perspective, like, how it actually works in the background and um, that it's not at the level of... Uh, reasoning yet when do you think we'll get to a level you know gpt4 gpt5 level of uh, machine that uh, every time is able to convince you that it can reason and it's intelligent um i don't know kirill i mean i don't think it's going to be like gpt4 or gpt5 i'm I'm a bit skeptical on this point actually mm-hmm. um you know I, I think a machine that is able to behave like this general artificial intelligence that could perform like any kind of natural language task like you and I can, like host a podcast mm-hmm. um, or, or write a book, um, I think we're, we're a long ways away because mm-hmm. um, we're limited right now. So these kinds of transformer architectures, they, they require differentiable equations. So in order to be able to train all the parameters, um, you need to be able to have um, partial derivative calculus basically apply over training data. And in order to make the big next leap, we're going to need to attach non-differentiable stores of information to that kind of differentiable learning algorithm. um uh so if you if you so for example gpt3 doesn't have um you know a, a a set of of strong factual relationships between entities like you have as a human reader of wikipedia um it it doesn't develop like these factual connections it just develops probabilistic um <laughs> connections and so that's that's one of the big leaps that uh, that need to be figured out, and I think it's going to be some time before it is. Mm-hmm. Question. Awesome, thank you. That was very interesting chatting about GPT three, um, and that also brings us to the end of this episode. It was uh, it was great, uh, interesting year uh, in twenty uh, twenty in uh, review and uh, difficult year, but uh, interesting technological advancements. Uh, anything you wanted to add before we wrap up? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess we should. I should have mentioned. I can't believe I didn't even think of COVID or anything, which was, you know, for doing a year yeah. review, we probably should have mentioned that at least in some way. And actually, so um, the very first topic that we had today, AlphaFold two, um, an application of uh, of this kind of these automated. Um, protein structure predicting algorithms is that it can, for example, um, predict the shape of the spike protein, which is in 
the COVID virus uh, or, or that, that allows the COVID virus to um, attack human cells. And so it's just an example um, of how the kinds of stuff that we're doing today is relevant to the kinds of problems that we're facing today. Um, and uh, yeah, we could have touched on that a bit more, but no, I have nothing else to say. Um, yeah, definitely 2020 has been a year, a, a, a weird year, Kirill. It was the year that never was uh, <laughs> for a lot of people. Um, and uh, yeah, certainly a, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, a hardship out there, both, you know, in terms of, um, you know, changes to the economic situation that have impacted people. Uh, and also a lot of a lot of sickness and 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 death, unfortunately, that's happened around yeah. the world um, as a result of COVID. But uh, going back to one of the early topics that we had at the very beginning of this call, I also think that it's you know if you think back a hundred years to the Spanish flu, we were so much worse prepared for that, and um, so much less equipped to come up with a vaccine quickly and distribute that vaccine. And, and a lot of these, all of these capabilities that we've made over this, this last century are facilitated today by the storing and transmission of data and even to some extent, the modeling of data with machines. So mm -hmm. that's my main yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah. The year is coming to an end, and um, hopefully things will get better in 2021 to, to allow us to get back to our normal lives. Thank you very much, John. It was a pleasure, as always, and uh, our listeners will hear much more of you in 2021, so very excited about that. Me too, Kirill. Thank you very much. So there you have it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and got some uh, interesting insights and some laughs out of it. As mentioned, John will be taking over the podcast in uh, 2021 onwards. I'm super excited about it. And um, it's going to be very cool to see how the podcast grows uh, with him as the host. So please welcome him and uh, help him feel at home here on the Super Data Science Podcast. If you're interested in the reasoning behind why um, I'm stepping down from the role of the host of the Super J Science Show, check out the 5-Minute Friday episode that's coming out this week. Uh, you'll learn more about that. But in the meantime, we've uh, got a few more episodes still to go in this year, and I can't wait to see you throughout them. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode at superdatascience.com slash 429. That's superdatascience.com slash 429 there we'll share any materials any links urls uh books anything that was mentioned on the show so check it out and uh, if you are excited about about any of these topics and you know someone else who might be excited about them then uh, send them a link to this podcast share the love it's very easy to share just send the link superdayscience.com slash 429 on that note thank you so much for being here today i look forward to seeing you next time until then happy analyzing